You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Hey, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 14 as we rapidly approach the end of this glorious gospel. If you don't have a Bible, reach in the seats in front of you and find one of those Bibles on page 850. We'll get you to Mark 14. You know, I, I, I grew up in a church where it seemed like the pastor preached the four Ps every week. It seemed like we sang the same hymns every week. It seemed like at the very end when there was an altar call, we sang just as I am. And it seemed like we added verses every week so that as a kid, I thought just as I am had a hundred verses. My point in sharing that is I think that sometimes our Christianity can become routine, can't it? I think that sometimes what we do here every week can become routine. And our God knew that the temptation with religion is that it would become routine. And so as we study this passage, we're going to see that God prescribed festivals for the Jews that would allow them to break up routine, that would allow them to take their busy daily lives and remind them of God's character. And we've had an opportunity here at the church To be able to do that through baptisms, through the Lord's table, through special elements that we interject into our weekly worship. But this morning, we have had a tremendous opportunity to break the routine, and that is by having Adi Rusnak with us. And so I'm just going to take the opportunity to recognize him again. If you weren't here at the very beginning, you missed something spectacular. But I'm just going to ask Adi to stand. Would you just welcome him here at Ascend? I think it's a blessing to be reminded of Revelation 5, that there will be a day when it is not going to be all Americans that we are standing around. In fact, our ethnicity, our political affiliations will mean nothing when we get to this place where we will all be together and with the same language and with the unified voices, we will worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as we turn to Mark chapter 14, let me read the 11 verses, as I do you will probably find this account familiar. If you've grown up in the church, if you've read the Gospels, you know that this account occurs in three of the Gospels and a similar account occurs in the Gospel of Luke. As I read this, and despite its familiarity, I want you to be asking, why did the Holy Spirit intend for this account to be placed in the Bible? Why did Mark place it where he did in his Gospel? Why are the phrases and the words and the details provided in this account, in this place? And I hope as we unpack it together, all of those questions will be answered. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you do not always have with me with you. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Why is this account provided with this detail in this spot? Well, it reminds me of my childhood. You know, growing up, and this is going to be a history lesson for some of you, for others it's going to be a walk down memory lane, but we used to use currency to buy things. And there were these vending machines that y'all probably aren't very familiar with that actually had a coin slot so that as you put in your money, they would give you change. And so as a kid, what we would do is we would go through the airports and through the malls and we would find one of these vending machines and we would stick our finger in there hoping that somebody forgot to get their change and maybe we would find a quarter. Remember those days? Well, I was sitting in an airport one time, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a paper bill. And so I I got closer to it, and as I got closer to it, it wasn't George in the middle of that. It was Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, some of you are old enough to know what that means. (laughs) For For the rest of you, we'll put a picture up on the screen. And so, so I saw Benjamin Franklin in the middle, and, and I had never had one of those paper bills. And so I quickly looked at the corners, and I saw one, zero, zero, and I started calculating all the baseball cards and all the Nintendo games that I would be able to buy with that. And I was getting very excited, and I turned it over, and I saw something like this. And now, it's creative, but I'm reading about Jesus and about the gospel. And and even though I'd never had a Benji, I had had plenty of Georges and Abraham Lincoln's, and you'll have to Google this one, Andrew Jackson, and Adam Hamilton, but I'd never had a Benji. Now, I'd had enough of these paper bills to know that on the backs of them, the authentic ones, was not the gospel. And so as I looked at that Benjamin that I held in my hand, and I compared it against the authentic, I realized it wasn't what it claimed to be. And friends, the gospel of Mark was written in a time that is not so different than our time. Because there's a lot of people walking around who claim to be authentically devoted to Christ, And yet, when we begin to evaluate their lives, when we begin to evaluate who they truly are, we realize their devotion is not authentic, and some might be here in this room. And so the opportunity that we have is to walk through an account that Mark provides for us that is going to give every one of us who claim to be authentic, devoted followers of Jesus the opportunity to see, is it real? Look at the big idea in your notes. 
true devotion can be difficult for us to verify, but not for Christ. We're going to see four litmus tests in this story that will give you and will give me an opportunity to walk out of here to see, are we authentic? Number one, what motivates your jealousy? What motivates your jealousy? In verse 1, Mark provides some details to let us know it's two days before the Passover. The Passover was on the 15th day of the month of Nisan. And it began what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was seven days of feasting and celebration in Israel. But the first day was very important, and it commemorated the leaving of Egypt by the Jews. It was the opportunity to remember when the angel of death passed over the Jews who put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and was able to spare the firstborn sons of the Jews. It was a time of reflection. It was a time of worship. It was a time of great anticipation and also national pride. And there's some groups that Mark reveals to us, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, by this point in the gospel of Mark, when we see this group of people, we would almost be tempted to boo and hiss. We know these are the enemies of Christ, and yet, for that original audience, there must have been such tension. Because these groups were tasked with protecting Israel. They were tasked with making sure that nothing unclean came in. Tasked with making sure that Israel spiritually was clean. They had priestly duties for the nation. These were supposed to be the most devoted people to the God of Israel. We've been reminded throughout the Gospel of Mark that these people are growing in their jealousy. Now, jealousy in and of itself is not horrible. In fact, the definition of the word that in the Bible is translated jealous is to have a deep concern or devotion to someone or something. And that is not bad in and of itself. In fact, our deep devotion and commitment to things cause us to put flags that are blue and crimson out this morning. I was driving through our neighborhood and there were lots of flags out. Didn't see a whole lot of wildcats or tigers flags, but there were a lot of KU Jayhawks flags. It causes people to actually come to first service so that you can be freed up to watch pregame during second service. It causes us when the results of a game are either what we want or not what we want to be emotionally impacted. Our commitment and devotion to relationships and friendships cause us to remove things from our calendar and to add some things to others. Our commitment and our devotion or our jealousy can cause us to answer the phone when we see certain names pop up and to click it to voicemail when others. Jealousy in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, isn't it interesting but Exodus 34, 14 says the Lord's name is jealous. It says that not only is his name jealous, he is a jealous God. So concern and devotion in and of itself 
are not wrong, and yet jealousy occurs in the list of Galatians 5.20, the deeds of the flesh. And so how are we to understand jealousy? Well, sinful jealousy is when we have resentment or bitterness. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the religious leaders collaborated with the Herodians to arrest Jesus. In chapter 11, verse 18, it says that the religious leaders were seeing the crowds grow in their astonishment and their amazement of Rabbi Jesus, and they grew in their jealousy. And here, as we see the Passover, where Jerusalem would swell to about three times its population, that this is the turning point of their jealousy. Look at what it says. It says they were seeking to kill him, but not during the feast. Do you see that in verse 2? Why? Because it says, lest there be an uproar from the people. The word uproar occurs in other places to describe riots. And within the Roman Empire, riots were greatly looked down upon by the authorities. In fact, you can write down Acts chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, where at Ephesus, the leaders of Ephesus were getting worried because the crowd was getting whipped up into a frenzy, and the leaders of that city said that if we do a riot, that the Romans will come in and they will take away our privileges. You can also write down John chapter 11, verse 45 through 48, where Caiaphas said that if we have a riot that takes place, Rome will take away our control. The religious leaders were intensely jealous in a sinful way. And here's the litmus test. I'll have the team put it up on the screen. When push comes to shove, whose honor is most important? When push comes to shove in your life, when the decisions for your calendar, when the decisions for the activities that you participate in, when the decisions for how you are emotionally impacted, when push comes to shove, whose honor is most important? You see, a lot of times in our friendships and in our social media evaluations, the jealousy that wells up within us is very rarely for the honor of Christ. It's mostly for the honor of self. And the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to be the most devoted to the God of Israel, had jealousy take place in their heart. They were exposed that it was not the glory of God or the glory of Christ. It was the glory of self. And friends, if the answer to this litmus test is anything other than ultimately Christ, we're on a slippery slope. And the slippery slope is revealed in verse 1 as it says that they sought to arrest him by stealth because the word stealth means to deceive by trickery or falsehood. How could these religious leaders, these theological experts, these priests intended to protect the spiritual purity of Israel be at a place where they were willing to be deceitful or false. It was because the litmus test for them is that when push came to shove, it was their honor that was most important. Number two, 
what motivates your sacrifice. What motivates your sacrifice? There are two events in the Gospels that are very similar. There is this one in Mark, as well as Matthew and John, and then there is also another one in Luke 7. And as best as I can tell, they are two different events. Matthew, Mark, and John put this event at the end of Jesus' ministry. Luke places a similar event at the beginning. And so as we look at this, I'm going to conclude that this is the event that Matthew writes about in Matthew 26 and John writes about in John 12. And so we fill in the blanks by some of the details that Mark provides. Look at verse 3. While Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now we don't know exactly who Simon was other than he probably was healed by Jesus from his leprosy. Which if you've studied the Bible, you know that leprosy was the worst disease that you could get. It not only was physically painful, but it made you an outcast from society. And so Jesus, as it were, took Simon from a living death to a living life. And he was grateful for that. Most likely, this event was in celebration and in gratitude for Jesus healing him. But we also know as we look at the other Gospels that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were present. Now, they were very grateful as well, weren't they? Because in John 11, Jesus had actually brought Lazarus back from physical death. So Mary and Martha were there. And it was likely Mary who was the woman who came up to Jesus. Now what's interesting about this is that we can find parallels in our own lives, can't we? I was reading a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and the commentary writer was talking about the student ministry wing of his church that was filled with couches. But these couches had holes in them. They were smelly. And they were couches that represented people in the church sacrificing. And what they were is couches that were no longer worthy of being in those people's house. And as they upgraded couches, they thought, well, these are worthy of the Lord's house. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with donating old couches. We will accept some and not others. There's nothing wrong with donating things to the church that you no longer need or donating things to people in need that you no longer need. But friends, there is something to be said about the comfort of sacrifice. And that's often what we do as Christians, don't we? In fact, here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. The world and sadly many in the church will never have a problem with moderate measured devotion to Christ. And you see, this is an opportunity by the example of Mary to be able to see what kind of sacrifice God is looking for. Look at the details that Mark provides. And before we even get to the flask of ointment, look at this detail. A woman came to Jesus. In an ancient culture where a public event was taking place, where men and women were present, it was unacceptable for a woman to approach a rabbi. And yet this woman, Mary, did not care. 
She approaches Jesus and she comes with a box that in the ancient world would have immediately been identifiable. An alabaster box was reserved for a special use, and that was to carry extremely costly ointment. And in fact, Mark unpacks this with a list of details that are not needed. All that would have needed to be written for the ancient audience was an alabaster box. But look at what he says. It was an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now this ointment was reserved for one place and one place alone, and that was India, a long ways from Jerusalem. And in fact, this is not just a watered-down version. This is pure, genuine nard. And then Mark adds, it's extremely costly. In fact, we'll read in a couple verses later that it actually would have cost about a year's salary for a laborer. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says that she broke the flask. Now, as we look at this, as you study history, you might be tempted to think that all she did was break off the neck of the, bo- of the box. But what we see in chapter 12 of verse 3 of John is that it filled the room with the ointment's aroma. And so most likely what she did is she actually broke the flask completely so that there was no going back. And what we see in these details is that this woman is sacrificing immensely. And then look what it says. It says that she poured it over his head. Now, it would have been amazing if she would have poured it over her head so that everywhere she went, the smell of the ointment would have been smelled, but she poured it over Jesus' head. Friends, what an example of sacrifice. What's interesting, though, is Jesus' commentary on it. Look at what it says in verse 8. She has done what she could, which draws our attention back to chapter 11 with the widow's pennies. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is an interesting phrase, one that until I studied it this last week, I didn't fully comprehend. Now, what it would seem for us who know the rest of the story is that this woman understood that Jesus was about to die on the cross and that three days later he would rise from the grave. But when you read John 11, they didn't understand the details of what was going to happen. In fact, Jesus said, I am the resurrection in the life. And Martha responded by saying, I know that someday we all will resurrect. So, so Mary does not fully comprehend the symbolism that is going on here, but Jesus does. I think what's interesting of what Jesus says is that he provides both symbolism as well as a physical commentary. Look at what it says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. When you look at the rest of the Gospels, in fact, Luke 23, 56 tells us that the ancient Jews would have put spices and ointments on a loved one who had died. There were two reasons for this. Number one, the body would decompose relatively quickly in the Middle East. There would be smells associated with that, and so the ointment and the spices would help disguise the smells a little bit. But 
Mostly, this was intended to show the intense love and respect of friends and family members for the deceased. What Jesus was saying here is that this woman is showing intense love, respect, and honor for Jesus. But he's also saying that symbolically, this is the ultimate display of devotion, and that is someone dying for the cause. Litmus test number two is when the opportunity to honor Christ exists, is there anything too costly? If you were to say to Jesus, you can have anything, anything at all. I will go anywhere. I will do anything except. Is there anything in that except category? For parents, are you willing to give up your kids if Christ asks for them? That's what the Lord did to Abraham in Genesis 22. Are you willing, parent, for your child to come to you and say, I I sense I'm being called to the mission field. I sense I'm being called to ministry. Maybe you, adults, have an amazing job, but you're sensing that maybe God is calling you to ministry. Maybe God is calling you to up your tithes and offerings. Maybe God is calling you to join the worship team. Maybe God is calling you to plug into a small group, even though your life is so crazy busy. If you sense that Christ is calling you to something, is there anything in your life that is too costly Friend, if you are dating somebody who you think that you love, and maybe you do, and yet the Bible says you are not to be unequally partnered, is that too costly for you? And so, friend, we see that this is more than money. It's more than possessions, but it's at least that. And the litmus test that this woman puts on display when the opportunity to honor Christ exists, is there anything too costly? Jesus says in verse 9, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world. Now again, don't just read this as a 21st century American reading the 66 books of the Bible. Read this as a first century Jew. The gospel is going to be preached and the entire world would have been unbelievable. And yet what Jesus says is, is that when the gospel is preached throughout the entire world, this woman's story will be told why. Is it because of the alabaster box? Is it because of the 300 denarii? Is it because of the woman's name? The woman's name isn't even given here. It's because authentic devotion sacrifices. That's why. Which brings us to number three. What motivates your criticism? What motivates your criticism? Verse four says that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, The word indignantly means to be anger because you judge something to be wrong. Listen to that last phrase. You judge something to be wrong. We we do this all the time, don't we? We are constantly judging. Judging is a concept of determining what is right and what is wrong, but it requires a standard, doesn't it? I use the word criticism and the outline. It's a word... Criticus in Latin, it means to judge. 
It is essential to Christianity. Now, some of you might say, well, what about Matthew 7, 1? Do not judge lest you be judged. Well, that's just taking something out of context if you say that that means that Christians are not supposed to judge. In fact, a few verses later, it says you will know a person by their fruits. We are to judge as Christians, but do so rightly. With the right standard, with the right motivation, with the right response. In fact, John 7, 24 says that we are to judge with the right judgment. What is the right judgment? Well, there's a difference between how man judges and how the Lord judges, isn't there? You can write down 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. As Samuel was walking through the sons of Jesse and he saw the first one and he said, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely the next one is. Surely the next one is. And then he got to the runt. He got to the one who was out in the sheep fold, smelling like sheep. And what did the Lord say? This is the anointed. Do not look on the outward appearance. Do not focus on the horizontal because the Lord focuses on the heart. The Lord focuses on the vertical. It's interesting. There were two standards that were on display by the sum. The first standard is the horizontal. Verse 5 says, This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And I've heard pastors and I've read commentators try to calculate with the modern dollar and what the minimum wage is. But let's just say this is an expensive ointment. And it could have been sold for a lot of money. And, And on the evening of Passover, it was traditional to give to the poor. And so everything is setting up here perfectly for the system's to argue, to sell it, don't pour it out. And and I'm a systems guy. I love love statistics. I love logic. So I'm actually tracking with these disciples. In fact, John says that Judas started the, the argument. Matthew says the disciples chimed in. And so the devoted ones to Christ, I'm following their logic here. You could sell all of this and give to the poor, But then there was also a selfish evaluation. John 12, 6 says the Judas motivation was so that he could rob from the money bag. It's interesting, Jesus' response in verse 6, leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. And what he's not saying here is don't give to the poor. It's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, what is your standard of evaluation of opportunity? Here's the third litmus test. When it comes to your process of evaluation, is the glory of Christ your number one? Is the glory of Christ your number one? See, see, look at the responses of the two. The same event is being evaluated, isn't it? The same event is being criticized by both the disciples and Jesus. Criticized from the standpoint of determined what was right and what was wrong. 
And listen to this. What's fascinating is that the devoted ones to Christ conclude that this event was a waste. Isn't that fascinating? As if the ointment was poured out on the head of their rabbi. It was poured out in honor of Christ. And the response was, it was a waste. And yet look at Jesus' response. He says it was beautiful. How interesting this is. Before we move on to the final litmus test, I want want to home in on, on two realities that I pray will either be encouraging to you or convicting. The first one is, are you willing to walk away if Christ demands it? Are you willing to walk away if Christ demands it? Are you willing to walk away from your job? Are you willing to walk away from your social media presence? Are you willing to walk away from comfort? If Christ demands it, are you willing to walk away? Listen, if you do, your friends and family won't understand. I can promise you that. They're going to call you a radical. When you come out of the manager's office and your colleagues say to you, well, what's going on? And you say, listen, I'm leaving my job that I get paid well for, that I'm on a good trajectory to go to seminary. They're going to say, that's crazy. When you come out of a meeting with your boyfriend or girlfriend and your friends say, What just happened? And you say, I broke up because we're not pointing each other to Christ. Your friends are going to say, that's crazy. But my question to you is, what is your standard of judgment? What is your standard of evaluation? If Christ demands it, are you willing to walk away? But then if I just leave you there, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of potential confusion because how do you know if Christ demands it? Because there's a lot of people who would say, well, it just feels right to me. There's a lot of people who would just say, well, God told me. How do you know whether or not Christ is demanding it? Well, that's the second question to ask yourself. What is your process? What is your process of evaluation? Three things that I would give you. Prayer, the word, and counsel. Prayer, the word, the Bible, and counsel. And and listen, counsel is not just people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. You you remember that story in in, in Kings where Ahab and the king of Judah are evaluating whether or not they should attack and all the prophets come and they say, yes, you should attack, you should attack. And the king of Judah says, is there anybody else? And Ahab says, yes, there's one other prophet, but I hate him because he always tells me what I don't want to hear. You need those people in your lives that are willing to tell you what you don't want to hear when it's grounded in Scripture. And so, friends, prayer, the word, and counsel. And let me tell you, write down Proverbs 18.1. I cannot tell you how many people 
in my years of ministry experience will come to me and they will say, Pastor, I'm moving my family, I'm starting a new job, and I'll say, what counsel have you, have you sought? And you said, well, I've just been praying about it, and I've talked to my wife about it. I'm like, well, okay, and who else? And they say, nobody else. He who isolates himself is a fool. Friends, this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to Christians, and that is the body of Christ. You have six elders in this church who by the patterns of their lives have patterns of godliness, not perfection, but godliness. You have six elders in this church who are men of the word, who are qualified to be elders because they have discernment, because they can refute false doctrine. You have six men in this church whom you can go to, who are accessible, who you can email at elders at ascendkc.org, and you can ask them, can I grab a coffee? Can I treat you to lunch? Can I get a Zoom call? Can I meet with you during one of the services, in between one of the services, who will weigh what you're struggling with or what you're processing with Scripture and with the glory of your Christ and are going to give you counsel? You have small group leaders. You have deacons. I'm looking out on a group that is demographically a wide range. This is not a young church. This is not an old church. This is not a mid-century church. It is a wide range church, and I love that. But friends, I'm looking out on a bunch of older people who have settled into a rut of retirement, spiritually speaking. You're not engaging in ministry. You're not mentoring people. You're not seeking out people in your small group to be able to share your life experience with, to pour into them. And I'm looking out on a lot of young people who, because you're so busy, I love how people who, when they have their first baby, they're like, uh, Pastor, I can't do that. I'm so busy. Okay. Wait till you have teenagers. There's young people who are not reaching out to the more mature people in the church saying, hey, once a month, can I meet with you? I just want to read scripture. I just want to have you pray with me. I just want to share with you what's going on in my life. And I just would love to hear your thoughts. We don't have young people that are actively doing that. And we've got the mid-century people who are buying into the lie that there's such thing as a midlife crisis. There's no such thing as a midlife crisis when I read scripture. A midlife crisis is only when we get our eyes off the prize, which is Christ. And so friends, wherever we are on the spectrum, let's use this as an opportunity to evaluate what is the motivation for our judgment, for our criticism as we make decisions in our lives, what to do, what not to do, who to be with, what is the standard of our criticism and our evaluation? Is it anything other than the glory of Christ? Which brings us to number four, what motivates your expectations? Remember, every word that is in Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable. And so when we see a phrase that we would easily skip over, it often signals to us the point. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, underline that phrase. 
There is no reason Mark should have provided that phrase. He had introduced us to Judas Iscariot back in chapter 3 in verse 19. And remember, when this original gospel was read to the original audience, it would not have been 20-some weeks of a sermon series. It would have most likely been a reading that would have occurred at one time. And so the readers would have understood who Judas was. So why did Mark say Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve? I think it's because of this. What was required to be one of the 12? Remember back in chapters 1 and 2, when, when Jesus grabbed Peter, James, John, and Andrew. When, when, when Jesus invited Matthew, the tax collector. What was the two-word phrase that he said to them? Follow me. And remember, that had not as much to do with the physical following as much as it did with the spiritual expectations. And that is, be all in. Be all in. Be committed to me. Have your expectations be that if I want it done, if I say to do it, if I say not to do that, Christ speaking, then you're doing it. Or you're not doing it. Why? Because you're all in. Friends, we spend our lives constantly evaluating, don't we? Every decision that we make in our lives is an evaluation of expectations, yet we don't stop to think about that a whole lot. I was confronted with this a few weeks ago. I usually make decisions when it comes to eating based on taste and convenience. But I went to my physical. And listen, God has blessed me with, in the past, a high metabolism. If you ever look at my dad and you see how old he is and you see that he doesn't necessarily have a a dad bod for a 76-year-old, that's the genetics that I have. And yet I'm realizing that the older that I get, the less those genetics help and the more the decisions help. And so the nurse called and said, Jeff, I just want to tell you everything looks good except for your bad cholesterol. Cholesterol what? Cholesterol. Started Googling what cholesterol is, realizing it's pretty important. And so I said, what what, what do I need to do? And they said, well, that level either needs to start coming down or you're gonna have to make some major changes in your life, which I know involves changing pizza. So, I started looking at that nutrition box on the back of all of our food. Don't usually look at that. Don't really care about it. Taste and convenience. And for me, the majority of my lunches when I uh, am not meeting with one of you have been eggs rolled up in a tortilla. It's been eating yogurt in the morning. It's been enjoying my cheese. But as I looked at that box, guess what? Cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. And so what's happened for me is I have begun to evaluate the food that I eat differently because I have expectations not of taste and convenience, but of health, of extending the runway from my vantage point of the time I get to spend with my bride and my girls, the time that I get to spend being your pastor, 
And we are constantly making evaluations, constantly doing so in light of our expectations. What's interesting is that when we follow Christ, when we answer the call of following Christ, very rarely do his expectations match ours. Very rarely does he ask to do what we would expect him to ask us to do. But he always expects us to home in on the face in the middle of the dollar bill. And that face is Jesus Christ. He is our everything. And when we look at that paper bill, as it were, and the numbers up in the corner, most likely and more often they are a negative number, aren't they? There's a movement of professing Christianity that somehow following Christ is a life of health and wealth and prosperity. And listen, there's nothing wrong with all three of those things if they are glorifying Christ. But the life that he gives us is a life that will most honor and glorify him, not what will most satisfy our horizontal wishes. And so it's important for us to remember that often his asks are opposite of our expectations. But what he doesn't do is just say, suck it up and do it. What he does is remember whose face is on the dollar bill. Remember whose face we're pursuing. This is Christ. And friends, too often times when I say that, we run that through a filter of a Christ of our own designs and our own expectations, and saying that Christ is at the center does not raise our excitement. But when we study the Jesus Christ of Genesis to Revelation, not just the Jesus who heals a few people, not just the people who casts out some demons, not just the Jesus who extends mercy and grace, but the whole package, that he is the one that will bruise the serpent's head, that he is the offspring for the whole purpose of the Abrahamic covenant, That he is the one who fulfills what Israel could not fulfill. That he is the son of David that fulfills what Solomon could not fulfill. That he is the ultimate Adam. That he will be the one that we dwell with in eternity. And I hope, friends, that at some point this is exciting you. And you're allowed to say amen in here. Because amen means truly. It means we agree. And so, friends, when it boils down to expectations, if our expectations will be satisfied by anything other than Christ, we are in the same position as Judas, one of the 12. Look at what it says. He went to the chief priests in order to betray them, him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him what motivated him, money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Litmus test number four. When you consider your life expectations, does everything take a back seat to the agenda of Christ? I I love how that's worded because, listen, there's nothing wrong with taking a job because it pays more. There's nothing wrong with moving to a place because it's a warmer climate. There's nothing wrong with making decisions to come to first service so you can watch the game at 120. 
There's nothing wrong with those things as long as they take a back seat to the glory of Christ. Because after all, what does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? It is the blueprint for our life. Whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, we do all to the glory of God. Is that our expectation? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There are two common denominators in these accounts. There's the common common denominator of self, and there's the common denominator of Christ. The common denominator of self brings us to a place where we look at the pouring out of ointment and sacrifice and conclude, what a waste. It's where the horizontal eclipses the vertical. It's where human logic supersedes theological logic. And so my question to you this morning is this. Are you in a place where the common denominator in your life is Christ? The decisions that you make, the priorities that you keep. And friend, it's impossible for that to take place in your life unless you have first committed your life to Christ. So have you ever had a time in your life where you've laid aside self and surrendered by taking up the cross? Turn from your sin and ask God to forgive you, not because of anything that you could do, but because of the completed work of Christ. Have you devoted yourself to being a servant of the King? If not, would you do that this morning? And then if you have, is this is your opportunity to evaluate the, the, the paper bill of your devotion. Who's in the center? Is it Christ? Is he the filter through which you look at all of life? Is he the filter that you run your thoughts through? What is your motivation? 